You have been listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church. We invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For more information, visit day3church.com. Good morning. If you were here when we started this series called uh, Seven Letters, and uh, what it is, the series dealing with the seven letters that Jesus sent to the seven churches in Revelation. If you remember, I kind of started out the series talking about um, love letters that Becky and myself had exchanged with each other back in high school. Uh, kind of as an illustration. And, uh, you know, I talked about uh, when we were dating, running across campus to see her and things like that. Anyway, Becky was in the basement this week and going through some stuff, and I have a vintage... 1972 love letter. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm getting old. I was a sophomore in uh, high school at that time. And uh, one that I wrote to her, and it says, Becky, since I can't talk, and I don't know what was up with that, you know. Most people never see me when I couldn't talk. Evidently, I was sick, and I just don't remember it or something. Uh, since I can't talk, maybe I can write. If only I could learn to spell, and I was trying to be cute, then I took red ink, because you can't see it where you're at, and, uh, and put, I love you, L-U-V, trying to be cute with red ink. Today, how about coming out the door that goes outside from the hall to meet me after a second period, so I won't have to run. Evidently, I was starting to uh, uh, get beyond just wanting to run across campus unashamedly, and people seeing me. And, uh, and things, trying to get to see her between classes. So now I'm asking her to come out and make it a little bit easier on me. Or it might be because I was sick. Like I said, I don't remember. A long time ago, 1972. We have plenty, we'll have plenty of time to make it to class because when I came by your history class, uh, while we were changing classes the other day, I walked and made it to class with plenty of time to spare. So please come out and meet me so I won't need to run. I guess I look like a fool running across the campus to see you but since our lunch periods have changed, I just don't see you enough during the day. And then sloppily, I spelled it L-U-V again at the bottom of it, uh, Lynn. 1972, uh, Vintage Love Letter. Uh, <laughs> the one Jesus writes is much older. As he writes to these churches. Uh, a lot of you have probably written and received similar love letters. Most of the time, a love letter, you expect to have some positive or neat stuff in it. I don't know how much you would think it to be a love letter if it started out saying things like, you have bad breath. You all the time have stuff stuck between your teeth. By the way, you have bad B.O., body odor. Or how about the letter said, every time I see you, I get so sick, I want to puke. I'm sorry, I need to apologize. Regurgitate for you sophisticated folks. Would that seem like a love letter if someone wrote that to you? And the reason I'm, I'm saying something like that, because a lot of these letters Jesus writes to these churches have some very strong statements involved. Matter of fact, next week as we look at the church of Laodicea, Jesus actually writes a pretty sickening letter to them because he says, 
I wish you were one way or the other. I wish you were hot or cold one because you're lukewarm. I would just as soon vomit you out of my mouth. But the church we're looking at today, Philadelphia, is a church that Jesus does not say one negative thing to. He does not give them any type of correction. So in the true sense of the word, this is a love letter that Jesus is sending to the church at Philadelphia. We're going to be in verses 7 through 13 of Revelation 3, if you want to uh, join me in your Bible. Of course, most people know that, you know, the, the name Philadelphia, at least when we think of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, literally means the city of brotherly love. Now, I'm not sure how Philadelphia earned that title <laughs> because they have some of the meanest sports fans I have ever seen anywhere in the world. You know, instead of brotherly love, they're throwing junk at, you know, off onto the field and everything else if, if they get upset. Uh, I, I remembered back when, uh, a few years ago, when the Panthers actually could win some football games and, uh, and they were going to play uh, Philadelphia Eagles in a playoff game. And I remember people in Philadelphia talking junk about Charlotte and, and even, you know, some of their, you know, radio commentators and stuff talking about how tacky and dirty of a city Charlotte really is. And I'm kind of thinking to myself, I've seen both places. I don't know, you know, about Philadelphia saying Charlotte is a, you know, dirty town because I, I've seen both places uh, on it. Uh, the truth of the matter is there can be mean sports fans all over the place, you know. Right now the ones in Charlotte just don't care. They just don't show up. <laughs> But the, but the name Philadelphia, when we look at it in the Bible, literally means in the Greek, a king of Pergamon. And the reason for that is that some people from the city of Pergamon had gone out to this frontier area, and they had founded or started this city of Philadelphia. So that even kind of makes me wonder if they really start out brotherly love or this group decided we don't like you anymore in Pergamon. We're going to move over here and start the town of Philadelphia. And by the way, we're better than you are. We're the king of Pergamon. That's almost, you know, seems to me like what might have been going on with them. Philadelphia was about 25 miles from Sardis, the last church, the last city that we looked at. So the person that's delivering this letter that Jesus wrote through John would leave Sardis and have about a 25-mile journey. And he would come to this city of Philadelphia that was kind of on a, on a large plateau. To the northern part of the city, they had very fertile plains. So there they would raise a lot of agriculture. And the city was kindly built around agriculture. They really grew a lot of grapes. It was also built around the wine industry. It was located in a major travel route. There, there was a major road leading out of Rome on the way to the east that people would travel as they would make their way east. And it would bring them right through the town of Philadelphia. It was even given this official name. It was like the Imperial uh, Road or the Imperial Post is what they gave the name of that road leading out of Rome that passed right through Philadelphia. 
It was also known as this. The city had a nickname of being the gateway to the east because all the passages running through this city as people would travel east. Maybe kind of like Lenore's, the gateway of the Blue Ridge or something, you know? It had another nickname. It was called Little Athens. And the reason they called the city Little Athens was because they had so many temples built in Philadelphia to pagan gods. It was as though they were like the the little Athens, the main place of mythological gods in the the pagan worship that took place. It's like they're a little version of that. So because of all those pagan temples, it could have been a rather difficult place for people to serve Jesus and to plant a church. From what Jesus says, as we will read the story in just a minute, the words that Jesus shares with them, evidently it was a church that did not have a lot of uh, power or a lot of finances. It was kind of a, a small church. But it was located in a place of tremendous opportunity. Not only did the, the Imperial Road run through Philadelphia, there were several other main travel routes out of other cities in the region that traveled from their location into this location of Philadelphia. So a lot of people coming and going. A lot of opportunities for ministry. It's as though God positioned this church of Philadelphia in a place to where there was an open door for ministry to take place. Look at what Jesus says to this church. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. And then the same thing that Jesus says to all these churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's see what we can learn from this letter, this love letter that Jesus writes to this church in Philadelphia that we can actually apply to our life today. It's going to be kind of a simple outline because anytime you have a love letter, you have a writer and you have some words that are written. So that's how we're going to approach this today. If you're following along inside the updates and filling in your blanks like we hope you do, to kind of, you know, engage in the message a little bit more. Here's the first thing I want you to notice. Simply the writer of the love letter. 
who it is that is writing this letter. And as Jesus writes this letter to them, as he starts to write to Philadelphia, he will kind of give us a description of himself as he does to all of these churches. Look at verse 7 again, and here's what Jesus said. To the angel, which we've already established means the messenger or the pastor of the church in Philadelphia, write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I want you to notice two main things in this verse. First of all, notice the character of the writer. Notice the character of the one, of course, which is Jesus who's dictating this letter to John. Notice the character of Jesus, the character of the one that writes this letter. He gives us a picture of his character in verse 7, the first part of verse 7, when he says this, These are the words of him who is holy and true. These are the words of him who is holy and true. When Jesus used that terminology, more or less Jesus is saying, I'm God, when he says that. He he says, I'm the one that's holy, and I'm the one that is true. You might could look at Jesus saying, as opposed to all the false gods and all these false pagan temples in little Athens, Philadelphia, that you go to worship, in, in light of them being false, you need to understand something. I'm authentic. I'm real. I am different than they are. Because the word holy can also literally be translated set apart. We'll bring the word study up in just a few minutes. But it can mean set apart. So as opposed to being like the false gods, Jesus is saying, I'm different than they are. I am set apart because I am the real God. Jesus is saying that I am truth. Where all those gods were actually false and were not gods at all, Jesus is saying, I am the truth. He was letting them know that he, in fact, is God. Like I said, the word for holy means pure, sacred, or set apart. It was used to describe vessels in the temple that were ceremonially cleansed and ceremonially set aside to only be used in worship. The word true simply means truthful. True is in not concealing. Jesus is saying, I'm set apart. I'm different than all the other gods. By the way, here's what Jesus does for us when we trust in him. He sets us apart to himself. He makes us holy. He takes us from where we were in our sin, and he now designates that we're his vessels, that we're set apart to him, that we're set apart to live holy lives and to be different than the rest of the world. And he wants us to be dealing with truth in our own lives. In Revelation chapter uh, 6, verse 10, we don't have the passage or the, or, or the words up on the screen, but uh, the martyrs even call out to God, and they refer to God in Revelation 6, those who have been martyred, saying, you're the one that's holy and you're the one that's true. And as they did that, they're saying, one day you're going to set things right. One day you will be the one that will judge those who have martyred us. You're the one that will deal in truth because you're a holy judge and you are a true judge. And that's the way Jesus wants us as believers to live our lives. He wants our lives to be holy and true. And evidently these believers, because of what Jesus says about them in Philadelphia, were trying to live holy and true lives to him. They had been faithful to his name. So Jesus does this. He says, I'm opening a door of ministry before you. 
It appears to me the way Jesus describes himself to all of these seven churches has some bearing upon what he's going to say to the churches or what is taking place in these churches. Let me run through that for a minute. In Ephesus, Jesus says, I'm the one that walks among the lampstands. And then he threatens to come and take away their light if they don't repent and do the first works. So the way Jesus describes himself has application to what he's saying to the church at Ephesus. To one of the churches, he says that I'm the one that has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of my mouth. And then he threatens to that church, if you don't change the things, I'm going to come and fight against you with the sword that comes out of my mouth. Jesus describes himself, and then as he describes himself to these various churches, he gives a picture of what he is saying to them through the own description he gives of himself. To one of the churches, he says, I'm the judge that knows everything. And since I'm the judge that knows everything, you better wake up and you better change some things that you're doing because I will come and judge you. I will come like a thief in the night. Here to the church of Philadelphia, here's what Jesus said. We saw it just a second ago. I'm the one that's holy and true. And then Jesus looks at them and he says, you have kept your word. You've stayed faithful to my name. So it's as though Jesus is saying, I'm holy and true. You are living like you're holy and true. As a result of that, I'm going to open a door of ministry for you. I'll deal with this probably a little bit later in the message. But guys, I want to point out something for us to be sure we get it and get it good. Whenever Jesus opens doors of opportunity of ministry for us, we better walk through them. When he opens doors for us, that is a door for us to walk through because the same one that can open the door, Jesus said, I can shut the door and no one can open it. And in terms of salvation, if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, you need to understand this. If Jesus opens a door for you to salvation, if he's convicting you of your sin, showing you he loved you so much he put his son on a cross for you, if God is letting you know that and calling you to himself, there is a door of opportunity, a door of salvation you need to walk through, and you need to walk through it as he's inviting you because there's the possibility, the same one that's opens the door, can shut the door. And guys, there's coming a day that the door shuts. It might be when you die and you've not received Christ as your Savior yet, then that's a shut door. It's too late to do anything about it. Or it could be a time when he just stops dealing with your heart and he shuts the door. The character of the writer is simply this. The character is that he is holy and he is true. And by that, Jesus is saying, I am God. But I want you also to notice the authority of the writer. Not just his character. As Jesus describes himself here in verse 7, he also gives us a picture of his authority. He gives us a picture of his authority, first of all, based upon who he is. Look what's said there. Who holds holds the key of David. That phrase is a way of Jesus saying, I am who I say that I am. I am the son of David, which means he is also the son of God. He is the Messiah. He's quoting from something that appears in Isaiah. Look at this in Isaiah. I will place on his shoulder, God, right into the pen of Isaiah. I will place on his shoulder, talking about Jesus, the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. 
That is a passage of Scripture that deals prophetically with the fact that the Messiah, that Jesus Christ will come. And now Jesus himself designates himself as being the one that holds the key of David. He's simply saying, I am of the lineage of David. I am the promised Messiah. I am God in the flesh. That's what he's claiming, the authority in who he is. But also notice his authority in what he does. He says what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Probably a lot of people in this world that would wish some things that Jesus has opened would shut up. (laughs) Ministries, churches. Because the world would love to see the lost world that's under the control of Satan would love to see ministry just go away. There's nothing that would thrill Satan's heart any more than the doors of this place and other places like it to close forever and ever open again. There's nothing probably that Satan would love better than for you as a Christian to shut your mouth and never open your mouth again for Jesus. The problem with it is this. The world does not have that authority. Jesus does. And when Jesus opens a door, it's an open door, and the world can't shut it. And when Jesus closes a door, it's a closed door. In as much as someone might want to open it, they will not be able to do it at that point in time. Let me give you an illustration of that. You remember the ark? God put Noah, all the animals on the ark, and then what happened? Who shut the door? God shut it. Read the passage of Scripture. Noah didn't go over and pick up this huge door and slam it himself. God is the one that shut the door. And when it really started to rain, all those people out there might have started wishing that they had listened to the preaching of Noah as he was building the ark all these years, but they were making fun of him because they'd never seen rain before. Up to that time, there's just kind of a mist that would come up out of the ground. All of a sudden, it comes true, and it starts to rain. And there are people there that probably wish they could get in the door, but they can't get in the door because God has shut the door. And that's why I'm saying we better walk through ministries of opportunity when God opens doors before us like he did for Philadelphia. He put an open door before them. When God does that for us, we need to walk through it. When God opens a door for you for your salvation, you need to walk through it at that opportune time because there may come a day that God slams the door. And it's too late and you can't walk through it at that time. The writer of this love letter is Jesus who gives us a picture into his character and he says I'm holy and I'm true and he gives us a picture of his authority the fact that he is God and the fact that he opens doors and he closes doors let's look at the words of the love letter if someone writes a love letter and then there's this content hopefully you receive better ones than I managed to write to my former wife that I read to you earlier, the first part of this message. Hmm? To my wife, the letter that I wrote. To, did I say former wife? <laughs> Back the tape up. That's not the one we put on the website, by the way. Thank God she's coming to the 1030 service. Thank you for catching that for me. But the letter I wrote to her formally, 
before she was my wife. How's that? Jesus writes some words here that we need to pay attention to. You get a love letter, there are words there you need to pay attention to. And I want you to just break down this message that Jesus writes to the church of Philadelphia and look at the actual words, what he has to say. First of all, I think he writes some words of intimacy. That's a good thing in a love letter, isn't it? To have a little bit of intimacy. And here's why I'm calling it intimacy, because Jesus writes to this church and he says, I know your deeds. And the word know literally means this, to see, to gaze with eyes wide open. When you're in a relationship with someone and there's someone that that you love, you kind of hope that they are noticing you, don't you? I mean, you kind of hope that they pay a little bit of attention to you, that they're looking your way, that they are actually seeing you, that they are gazing at you. And that's what Jesus tells the church here in Philadelphia he's doing. He's saying, I see you. I know you in an intimate way. I see the deeds that you're doing. And before I say a little bit more about that, I want to kindly, kindly be sure theologically we're correct here when we're talking about deeds. Okay? Here, here's the thing with deeds. First of all, there's no way that deeds can save us. You understand that? There's no way that our deeds or our works can make us righteous. And I want you to clearly understand that because some people will start thinking about deeds. Oh, that means I work my way to heaven. Some people will fall off the wagon in the other direction and say, well, you know, I trusted in Jesus as my Savior. I'm saved by grace. I don't need to worry at all about deeds. Well, I I think either one of those ideas are false. Number one, we cannot become righteous by our deeds. Look what the Bible says here. Romans 3, therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. In other words, by deeds, by doing things. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The law was there to show us how messed up we are. Not to make us think we could climb some stairway to heaven by doing our deeds. But now a righteousness from God, there is a righteousness from God that we can receive. But here's how it comes. Apart from the law, not because of the law, not because of deeds, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The Bible had always told us this is how you become righteous. God never intended for people to think you jump through hoops by obeying the law and work your way to heaven. Because here's what it goes on and says. This righteousness from God comes... Through faith in Jesus Christ to all who have good deeds. Is that what it says? For all who believe. There's no difference for all who sin and fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners, but look at this. We are justified freely, not by works, not that we can earn it, not that we can deserve it, not by our good deeds, but we are justified freely by His grace, by His unmerited favor through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Jesus bought us, paid for our sins with His shed blood. By God's grace, we're birthed into the family of God. We cannot become righteous by our deeds. And everyone here ought to say amen. And you also say, you all say, thank God, because, you know, you can't work your way to heaven. You ought to be glad that you know that. 
But now here's the other aspect about deeds. Neither is it correct theology to say I'm saved by grace so I don't have to do anything. Because James says this, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? In other words, can someone that says, Thank God I've trusted in Jesus, but I'm not going to serve him. I'm not going to do anything for him. I don't have to worry about deeds at all. I'm just, you know, I'm just going to sit here and bide my time till I go to heaven. He's saying that's not authentic faith because authentic faith generates works out of your life. He goes on and he says, can, can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. There's a balance in it. We are not saved by deeds. Thank God it is solely, completely because of what Jesus did on the cross. But once we receive Christ as our Savior, we are called to live out our faith through deeds in a way that honors and serves Him. Now, having said that, I just want to be sure we were right theologically since I brought up the word deeds because sometimes people, you know, misunderstand that. But the main point I want you to get is this. Jesus is right into this church in Philadelphia. And Jesus is saying, I see your deeds. I see your good works. I know what you are doing. And just like in a love letter, you would like to know someone is watching you, somebody is paying attention to you, Jesus tells the church of Philadelphia, hey, I am watching you, I'm paying attention to you, my eyes are upon you, I am gazing at you, I see what you are doing in the city of Philadelphia, I see even though you're a small church, you are still faithfully serving me, I see what you do. Jesus is letting them know that he is very intimate in their lives, and here's new for us today too guys the same thing is true for us Jesus sees you now for some of us that might make us uncomfortable I'm not trying to make you uncomfortable I hope you love Jesus and are also serving him I want you to see it the way Philadelphia saw this letter because they were being faithful to Jesus and they read these words Jesus says I know I see I'm gazing at you and I like what I see And right now, you ought to take comfort in anything that you're doing for Jesus. He knows and he sees exactly what you do. Well, I don't do that much. All I do is kind of show people where to park. You're doing it for Jesus. I don't do that much. I just kind of stand at the front door and grin at somebody and shake their hands. You're being Jesus for that person when they show up on this property. I'm just handing out something for them. You're helping people stay connected and giving them something they can actually follow along in the sermon and things like that. You are being Jesus to them. All I do is kind of run a computer or do some slide dials up on the soundboard. That's fine. You're doing it for Jesus, and he sees it. Anything that you do for Jesus... He is gazing at it, and he sees it, and you ought to be thrilled that you have a Savior that is so intimately involved in your life. He wants to see and gaze at what you do. Not only does a love letter come with words of intimacy, a love letter also 
we'll have many times words of opportunity. Words of opportunity. There might be an invitation in with a love letter. You know, honey, I love you so much. Uh, by the way, let's, you know, let's go and do this together. Jesus actually gives them some words of opportunity. He gives them an invitation as he writes to this church in Philadelphia. And Jesus says this. He says, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Some opportunity. Jesus writes to them. A love letter. No correction to Philadelphia at all. And he says, I have put before you a door of opportunity. I've got something for us to do together, guys. That's more or less what Jesus is telling the church and the believers of Philadelphia. Just like someone might write you a love letter and say, let's go on a date. Let's go eat here. Let's go up on the mountains. Let's go on a vacation, whatever the case might be. Here Jesus is saying, I've got something I want us to do together. There's an open door of opportunity that I am putting before you as a church at Philadelphia. And when Jesus opens those doors, like I said a moment ago, we need to walk through them. Think about Philadelphia again. I gave you background to the city a moment ago. It's on a major trade route. All types of people coming through there. They had many opportunities because of people traveling through the city to try and win people to Jesus. It was also a place that had many pagan temples. And why initially we might think, man, that's a bad deal because they're worshiping all these false gods and that would make it difficult to serve there. Here's the flip side of that. It meant the people in that city were interested in spiritual things. The only thing about it, they needed to find out about Jesus. And guys, I don't know if you've noticed this in our culture that we live in. There are a lot of people today that are interested in, quote, spiritual things. What they need to understand is Jesus is the most spiritual thing. Jesus is the only way to get into a relationship with God the Father. And many times we just get mad at our culture and mad at our society because we see people, you know, searching after God this way or that way or new age or whatever the case might be. We actually need to understand something. That means that those people are interested in spiritual things and we need to take the opportunity to engage them and to show them what is truly spiritual and that is a relationship with the Almighty God of all the universe through Jesus Christ who loved them so much He paid for their sins on the cross. Instead of thinking it's something negative, we ought to view it as a huge opportunity. And Jesus opens up a door of opportunity for them. The word where it says before you, I have placed before you an open door, literally means in the face of. In other words, Jesus is saying, believers in Philadelphia, I've opened up such a door of opportunity for you that it's right in front of your face and you can't help but see it. And I think, Jesus still does the same things for us. I think he will put right in our path as individuals open doors to reach somebody for Jesus, open doors to minister to somebody for Jesus, open doors to love somebody for Jesus. And I think he does it for churches that he'll put open doors right in front of day three church and other churches. And he will put them right in front of our face. And we're going to have to either be rebellious or ignorant to avoid and fail to notice the fact that Jesus has an open door right before us. He tells this group of believers, as small as it were, that he put an open door before them. Remember the name of the city, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, a place that meant, you know, 
fraternity. In other words, Jesus is writing to a group of believers that based upon the name of the city probably implies this. They love him, they love each other, and they love others. This church was filled with people. Jesus didn't write any correction to them. This church, this little church in Philadelphia, was filled with people that loved Jesus, that loved each other, and loved others. You know what I think? I think that motivates Jesus to give an open door to a church. When Jesus looks at a group of believers and he sees that they love Jesus and they love each other and they love others, I believe that motivates Jesus to say, here's an open door, do something with it. In other words, guys, if we want to be the kind of church that can do everything that God wants us to do and have all kinds of doors of opportunity, here's a pathway to it. Love Jesus, love each other, and love others. And if he sees us loving Jesus, loving each other, and loving others, and with that, I think Jesus will throw open some opportunities for Day 3 Church. We've got an opportunity right now that is thrown right slap in our face in this ministry called Operation Christmas Child. Jesus has given us an open door right now to do something as simple as taking some of these boxes and folding them and turning them into boxes and going out and shopping and getting some simple items. Guys, you don't have to go out and spend a fortune. You ought to see the kids open up these boxes. They get to simple things. Our kids are spoiled. They would turn their nose up at the things that we can put in these boxes and send out to this world. And those kids grin like they've been given diamonds when they open these boxes and they see little simple items that someone has packed with love and in with it guess what happens they get the opportunity the chance to go through a bible study and be introduced to jesus christ and their family be introduced to jesus christ right here is an open door that we have right now to the whole world that we can take by walking through this door of operation christmas child an open door right in our face. Jesus, in this love letter, writes to them some words of intimacy. He says, I know you, I see you, I'm gazing at what you're doing. And he says, because you are being faithful to me, I am opening up a door of opportunity for you right here before your face. He also writes to them about words of faithfulness, words of faithfulness, or maybe words about faithfulness, you might could call it. Because he's writing to this group of believers in Philadelphia, recognizing their faithfulness to him. I think that's an important part of a love letter, don't you? If you're writing a love letter to somebody, don't you want to feel like you're writing a love letter to somebody that's being faithful to you? That really loves you, that's being faithful to you? Jesus looked at this group of believers, this struggling group of believers in this place called Philadelphia. And he is writing a love letter to them, and he's recognizing their faithfulness. He says, I know, same word we saw a minute ago, I see, I'm gazing at. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. As Jesus writes to this group of believers, he says, I know that you have little strength. And the Greek word that he uses there is the same word that we get our word micron from or my cross. And it means small or the least. He says, I know that you have little strength. And the word for strength in the Greek is the exact same word we get our word dynamite or dynamo from. And it refers to having power or ability or force. So Jesus is looking at this little church in this frontier town called Philadelphia. And he looks at them and he understands that they are small, 
that they might be the least in size, maybe of all these seven churches that he's writing to. But he understands that even though they are small and they don't have very much power and very much ability and very much force, they have still not made excuses about being faithful to Jesus because Jesus tells them this, even though you're little in strength, you have kept my word. And we saw this last week. It means to guard from loss or injury, to keep the eye upon, to prevent from escaping. It implies a fortress or military lines. In other words, in the military, you obey what you're told. He's saying, I'm looking at this little church in Philadelphia, and I've noticed even though you are small and you don't have a lot of power and a lot of ability within yourself, he said, you are at least guarding my word. You are keeping an eye upon my word. You are keeping it in your heart instead of allowing it to escape. You're obeying me as though you're in the military. You're taking this word and you're detaining it in your life. You're holding this word custody in your life and it's making a difference in your life. See, here's the deal. This little church, little struggling church in Philadelphia could have come up with all kinds of excuses. And they could have said, well, you know, we're small. We're out here in the frontier town. We're not in a big metropolitan area. So we can't really do a lot for Jesus. So we might as well just resign ourselves to not being able to do very much, and we don't have a lot of power and strength. We're just a small little church. But they didn't do that. Instead, they were faithful right where they were with what they had. Can I suggest to you that's all God expects of us? To be faithful right where you are with what you have. To be faithful in the place that he has planted you. To be faithful in the position that he has put you in. That's what he's expecting of us. And we can come up with all kinds of excuses like maybe they could have. Well, we're just kind of a small church and we're in a small area like, like Granite Falls. We're not really in this big metropolitan area. So, you know, we can't really become like a mega church and we can't really reach a lot of people. And we can make all kinds of excuses. Guys, can I remind you of something? The power is not in us. The power is in God. And this month, we're celebrating eight years of ministry. And we honestly didn't have any idea. I had a little bit of an inkling of what God might be wanting to do. But, you know, I understand. You know, we're not in Charlotte or some big city like that. I understand that. But I have been amazed with what God has done with this church in eight years. And before we start making excuses and saying, well, we really, you know, we're not, and we're in a small area, we're not in a big area, we can't really reach a lot of people. Can, can I blow your mind with something? Put a dot where this church is, check out the demographics in a 15-mile radius. That means 15 miles in either direction. Can you guess how many people live in a 15-mile radius? Try 220,000 people in a 15-mile radius. Don't tell me that we don't have people to reach for Jesus. I don't know of any church anywhere around that's running 220,000. We've got plenty of people that we can reach for Jesus. In a little place called Granite Falls, if we'll just be faithful right where he's put us. He allowed us to move in this facility beside a four-lane highway that averages 70,000 cars a day. 70,000 cars a day drive by this place. 
Guys, it reminds me a lot of Philadelphia, and here's why. They were on a major trade route. We've got people back and forth between Lenore and Hickory or going up the road to Boone and Blowing Rock and back and forth all the time. God has us positioned in a place to where we can make a difference for Him. What we need to do is not make excuses. Instead of making excuses, we just need to be faithful with what we have where we are. The truth of the matter is this. The strength of a church isn't in us, but it's an all-powerful God. Look, look at the next, next slide. The size of a church. Will you please get this statement that I put on the screen? And I don't know, maybe write it down. Write it down in your Bible. Write it down in your heart or something. Does the size of a church should not determine the ministry of the church. Only the call of God and the faithfulness of that call. What we have to do is figure out where God has called us to, what God's called us to do, and be faithful to His call. It doesn't have anything to do with our ministry having to be based upon the size of this church. It's not the size of this church. It's the size of our God and what God calls us to. He writes to this church and He lets them know that they have been faithful. Right now, and you may figure out part of this message is an advertisement for Operation Christmas Child. It is, and the whole next series is an advertisement for Operation Christmas Child. Right now, God has given us an opportunity to be faithful. An opportunity to take something that might seem small and be very faithful in what we are doing and what we can do for Him and make a difference in lives all across this world. He's writing a love letter. Words of intimacy. He's letting them know, I see you. I know what you're doing. He writes words of opportunity. He said, because you love me and you love each other and you love others, I put you in a place with a wide open door. And he tells them, you're being faithful to me. You are keeping my word. You have not denied my name. But he also writes some words of honor in this love letter. Now, I know the women would, you know, key in on this. I think probably the men would too. If you get a love letter from somebody, don't you like it when maybe they just honor you a little bit? Ladies, don't you like to feel valued and have some honor? We're even told in the Bible, in Ephesians, we're told that we're supposed to love our wives like Christ loved the church. And they need to feel that love. But guess what, ladies? It says, see to it that you... Honor your husband is more or less what it says. Because that's a built-in need in a man's heart to feel like he's, he's respected and to feel like he's honored. Jesus here writes to this group of believers. And he writes some words to them that lets them know that one day he's going to honor them in a really special way. He said, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan. Now we've seen that earlier in another church. In the church at Smyrna, where so much persecution was taking place, there's a group there that Jesus called the synagogue of Satan. And it said, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. And most Bible theologians believe what Jesus means by that is this. They might have been Jews racially or nationally, but they were not Jews spiritually. Because Jesus even looks at people in the Bible, in the New Testament, looks at a religious group called the Pharisees, and he lets them know you're really only a Jew, you really only belong to the Father's family if you love me. So it's not someone being part of God's family by national right 
or by their physical birthright. It's by us being part of the family of God by being spiritually born again by receiving Christ as our Savior. And he's saying these claim to be Jews, but they're not really fully of the family of God because they have not trusted in me. And these Jews were evidently persecuting the believers here in Philadelphia. So Jesus says, one day I'm going to make these people who are of the synagogue of Satan. Guys, I don't know that's a positive term. Do you think that's a positive term? Should we launch a new church next week and put it somewhere and put on the outside of the church synagogue of Satan? You know, that would be the name of the church. I don't think that's a very positive title, do you? The word Satan means accusers. It's like saying we're the group of accusers. We're the synagogue. We're the church of accusers, of accusation. Some churches could wear that badge, to be honest with you. He said, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. In other words, Jesus is saying this. One day, I'm going to make everything right. You've been faithful to me, and these Jews have been persecuting you, and they've been putting you down. One day, they're going to have to come, and they're going to have to admit that I've loved you, that I died for you, that you're now in the family of God, that you're now in heaven, that God prepared for you. And these who have rejected me and have persecuted you, they're going to have to come down and bow and confess it, that I've loved you. Some words of honor. But he also writes some words of promise. And that's what we're going to close with, these words of promise. Look what Jesus says in verse 10 through 12. Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on him my new name. In those verses, Jesus makes three pretty major promises. First of all, he promises them protection. He gives them a promise of protection. He says, since you've kept my command to endure patiently, since you've been faithful to my word, since you've not rejected my name, denied my name, he tells these believers in Philadelphia, because they've been faithful in a very pagan environment, he said, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Now, I told you in this series, we're mainly dealing with these letters to these churches in a practical way and not a whole lot of prophecy. Well, there is some prophecy, and here's part of it. This is one of the strongest statements you can find in the Word of God for something called the rapture. For Jesus promising before the tribulation, the great tribulation comes upon this world, See, I know he's writing to a group of believers in Philadelphia, and the immediate application does deal with the Roman persecution that's going to hit the churches in this area. But beyond that, it goes way beyond the scope of just Philadelphia because Jesus said, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon not Philadelphia, not Asia Minor, but he says, I'm going to keep you from that trial that's coming on the whole world. 
He's talking about a terrible time upon this whole globe. A time when the great tribulation will take place. And Jesus looks at this church as a type of the church, a picture of the church that he's going to rapture out. And Jesus says, before that terrible time comes, I'm going to spare you from it. I'm going to come and remove you out of this world before that great tribulation hits. Enoch was a picture of that in the Old Testament. Enoch walked with God and he was not. What happened after Enoch was gone? Flood took place. In the Bible here, as we look at what's being said about the church, after Jesus writes these seven letters to the church, and we get over in chapter 4, John is told to come up hither. And most Bible scholars believe that's a picture of the church being raptured out of this world before the great tribulation happens. And then you see all the judgments fall upon this world all through the rest of the book of Revelation. And you have to get all the way over to Revelation chapter 22 before you even see the mention of the church again. Jesus makes us a great promise, guys. He said, one day, I promise, I will take my faithful church out of this world before I judge this world. Now, let me qualify that. It doesn't mean you won't have tough times and I won't have tough times. It doesn't mean that believers across this world aren't facing degrees of tribulation right now because there are believers suffering and bleeding and dying across this world for their faith, and it could come to America. But he gives a promise to the church as a whole. And he says, I will take you out of this world before that great tribulation time comes upon this earth. He gives a great promise to them of protection. First Thessalonians chapter 5. Jesus is actually dealing with some thoughts about the second coming and about uh, him coming after the church. But I want you to notice what he says right here in verse 9. Paul writes these words to the church at Thessalonica, and he says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he writes that in a section of where he's writing about the second coming. And he says God didn't plan on believers facing that kind of wrath, but rather to receive salvation through Not only does he give us a promise of protection, he gives a promise of visitation. A promise of visitation. Look what he says. He said, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The threat of your crown being removed has nothing to do with salvation. It's talking about rewards. It's talking about the victor's crown. And the reason we ought to desire to have rewards one day in heaven is not so we can march around like you know, little proper kings and queens with, with crowns upon our head. But the Bible tells us in Revelation what we're going to do with those crowns. We're going to cast them at Jesus' feet. And that ought to be the reason why you ought to have good rewards and I ought to have the desire to have good rewards. I don't want a crown for Lynn Parsons. I want a crown to cast at the feet of Jesus. And you need to have a desire to have that crown to cast at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus tells these believers in this town called Philadelphia, I'm going to come one day. You need to hold on to what you have. Don't let anybody rob your reward. Don't fall into the culture so much that you lose your reward, that you lose opportunities to be serving me keep that door open keep walking through the doors of opportunity that I give you don't lose the reward that I want you to have he promises that he's coming one day 
I don't know how much you like this world and where you live. I'm afraid we get too comfortable with it anymore, to be honest with you as believers. But I think I can promise you this. No matter how much you may love the town you live in, no matter how much you may love the home that you live in or the car you drive or anything else, you will forget it all one day when you see the place that God has prepared for us. He promises that one day He's coming after believers. This isn't on the screen, so I'm going to make you do something radical. I'm going to make you get your Bible and open your Bible. Oh, you didn't bring yours? That's why you need to bring your Bible. I threatened before, one of these days I'm going to put Elizabeth in English on the screen, and you're going to think I'm reading the King James. Just because it said these and thou's. If you got your Bible, you can check up on it and see what it is that it's really saying. Look what Jesus says through the pen of Paul once again to these believers in Thessalonica. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant concerning those who fall asleep. In other words, those that are dead. Or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring those with Jesus who have fallen asleep in him. In other words, who have died. According to the Lord's own word, in other words, according to Jesus' own promise, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep or have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. What is he saying that ought to be to us? It ought to be an encouragement to us that our loved ones who have died and gone on are now with the Lord. One day they're coming back with the Lord. And if we're alive ourselves at the time that happens, we're called up to meet them and we will be with him forever. He writes words of visitation. If someone writes you a love letter, sometimes they'll say, I long to see you. I'm wanting to come see you. Jesus tells us that. I'm coming to see you one day and take you home to be with me. He also makes promise of glorification. Promise of glorification. Glorification simply means one day we're going to be like him. One day we're going to be in his heaven. One day we'll be there for all eternity. Look at how Jesus phrases this. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. I will also write on him my new name. Here's what all that means, what Jesus just said, I believe. He's writing to the people in Philadelphia, which, by the way, I failed to mention earlier in the message, in 17 A.D., the major thing that happened in the city of Philadelphia, the major thing that was a a difficulty for this city is that it was built on a fault line, kind of like Los Angeles. 
And in 17 AD, there was a major earthquake that destroyed most of the city. And the people had to flee out of the city. And for a long time, because of the aftershocks, they were afraid to go back in the city. So they lived outside the city, out there in the wilderness, afraid to go back in to the city. So with that in mind, I think these words that Jesus writes have special meaning to these people in Philadelphia. He said, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. That's not talking about some building in heaven because the Bible tells us in Revelation there's no temple there because God and Jesus are the temple in heaven. What that phrase means is this. Believers are going to be there in a permanent fixed position in heaven with Jesus for all eternity. We will never ever have to worry about fleeing or running out because we will never leave it we will be there like a pillar a pillar in safety a pillar in security a a pillar that no more has to worry in their lives when the foundations or the props might be knocked out when the earth might quake underneath your feet he's telling us as believers one day in heaven we'll be with him forever stable as a pillar and on us he will write his name in the name of the city and we will never ever leave there that's the promise he gives us of one day being glorified with him Man, that's a love letter, isn't it? Becky wrote me some good ones, but I don't think she ever topped that. You see, the front end of this love letter is this. Jesus stretched out his hands and was nailed to a cross and suffered and bled and paid the penalty for my sin and for your sin so that when we trust in him, we will have everlasting life and one day This is our destination. One day we'll be like a pillar in heaven forever and ever and ever. Always there with our Christ and with our God. So what are we supposed to do with this? I suggest to you the same thing that we've been told to do with all these letters that Jesus told all of these seven churches when he wrote to them. After Jesus communicates to these seven churches... All except two, Jesus gives words of correction. The letter he writes to Philadelphia is just an outright love letter to them. But he tells each and every one of these churches, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, if we can hear God, we need to listen to God and do what he says. So today, what we need to listen to is this. We need to listen To the God that has an intimate knowledge of us. Because Jesus writes to this group of believers and he says, I see you, I'm gazing at you. And we need to let that soak into our minds and our hearts today. That God is so concerned with our lives, he gazes at our lives. He writes a love letter to them that says, I put an open door before you, walk through it. And we as day three church, we need to look for the open doors that Jesus gives us of ministry and opportunity. And when he opens a door before us and we know it's his door, we need to walk through that door of opportunity. He writes a letter and he says, one day, 
no matter how you've been treated, how much people have ridiculed you or anything else, one day they're going to have to come and kneel down and admit that I've loved you. He writes a letter of promise and he says, hey, I'm going to protect you from this thing called the tribulation that's going to come to this world. I'm coming to visit you. I'm taking you home to be with me. And once you are there, you're going to be there like a pillar with me for all eternity. We need to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, just maybe this morning, at this time in your life, God's putting an open door right in front of your face for you to say yes to Jesus. The Bible says that we have all sinned. I read that verse in Romans earlier. We've all sinned. We all fall short. But it also said we can be justified. We can be made just like we've never sinned freely. Not deserving it, but freely. God will do that because of His grace through Jesus Christ. And today you might be a person that has that open door of salvation before you. Why not walk through it today? And if you're sitting there and you think, I've already done that, I know Him. Can I ask you what door of opportunity He might have before you that you need to walk through? And in light of this open door of opportunity Jesus has, can I ask you, between you and God, to settle this morning and to know for sure how many boxes He wants you to fill up with His love and send across this world. And I say, well, Pastor, I've already got 10 boxes. That's fine if God gave you the number 10. God may give you the number 20 or 50 or 100. How many boxes does God want you to fill up and walk through this open door of opportunity. Let's pray. Father, Lord, this morning I pray right now that you would help help believers first of all to evaluate open doors that you have before them. Lord, there may be someone here today that you're giving an open door to a fellow worker. Someone they work beside of day in and day out. They need to hear about Jesus. Father, I pray you help that person to walk through that door and share Christ with those that they work with. Lord, there may be an open door of opportunity you're placing before believers today for their own family members, to tell their own family members about Jesus. Father, you may be putting a door of opportunity before someone to serve you full time, to, to go and, and be a missionary on foreign soil, or, or, or to be a pastor, or whatever. But you're, you're calling them, and you're putting a door of opportunity before their face. Father, I pray you help them to walk through that door of opportunity. Lord, I believe you've placed a door of opportunity before our church in many churches right now, this time of year, to impact children across this world 
through Operation Christmas Child. Help us to pray right now and to ask you for the number of boxes. Lord, I pray you challenge us and stretch our faith that we'll walk through this open door and impact the world around us through Operation Christmas Child. Father, if there's someone here that does not know Christ as their personal Savior, I pray right now that you would put an open door of salvation before them. Help them to see how much you love them, so much you put your Son on a cross for them to pay for their sins. And give them the faith right now they need to walk through that open door. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Jesus wrote a love letter to a church in Philadelphia and Asia Minor years ago. He has a love letter for you today. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, His love letter is to receive Jesus, to trust in Him. He put His love letter on a cross for you. And if you know Jesus, His love letter is this. Walk through the doors of opportunity to serve me that I'm giving you. His love letter to Day 3 Church is maybe a wake-up call today to remember there are 220,000 people in a 15-mile radius of Day 3 Church and that that is an opportunity that God has placed before our face to make a difference in this world in which we live. God speaks to your heart. If you need to receive Christ as your Savior, I'll be here at the front. I invite you to come down. I will get someone to spend time with you off here to the side and be sure you understand what the Bible says about receiving Christ. If you need to come and walk through some door of opportunity He's given you, pray and just tell Him, God, thank you. I'm going to walk through it. I'm going to do what you're calling me to do. Then we invite you to walk through the door of opportunity He puts before you this morning. Please stand as the band leads us in song. You are listening to Sermon Audio from Dayton Church. If you have any questions about God, faith, or our church, email us at info at And for more information, find us on the web at day3church.com.